The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, at verse 15. Ephesians 1, at verse 15, reading to the end of Ephesians 1, this first of two great prayers of the Apostle Paul in this book, a prayer that is a model and a good example for us of how to pray, and we want to look at that this evening. It certainly ties into the Sermon on Pentecost this morning and the work of the Holy Spirit and how we need to be crying out and asking God for His Spirit to work in our lives. So let's read as we focus on God's Word, beginning at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May God bless his word to us as we seek to let it sink into our hearts. If I were to take a survey of Christians and ask, what do you consider the weakest point of your Christian life? I would expect that most of us would say prayer. Prayer is, I would say, the most difficult spiritual exercise. True prayer. And we know that Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And don't we all know how weak we are? All of us know how easily we are distracted, how our hearts quickly grow dull, and how the busyness of life tends to sap the spirit of prayer from our souls. And even When we do pray, we can struggle with what we need to be praying. Are we praying according to God's will? How should we pray in a certain instance? Well, what help do we have? Well, we have the Word of God. And I would say the most important help we have is the Word of God and the Spirit of God. 
Here we have a great example of prayer. We have Paul's prayer here for these new believers. It's a prayer that we can go to to mold and direct our hearts as we seek God in prayer. You might know of the story of George Mueller, a great man in England, preacher, and one who started various orphanages for uh, children. And he was renowned for his faith because all of his work with the orphanages, he never raised money by asking. He would pray. And that he has many, had many great stories of that, God answering prayer. But George Mueller experienced a change in his prayer life when he began as a relatively young man to base his praying on Scripture. And he testifies to this change in his life that his prayer life came more alive when he began to base it on God's Word, on the promises of God, the commands of God, the portrayals of who God is. And my hope for all of us tonight as we consider this wonderful prayer is that this prayer would become your prayer, that you would learn to make its petitions your petitions in prayer as well. Paul begins by saying, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, for this reason, looking back to all the blessings these new Christians have in Christ, all these spiritual riches to the glory of God, And because, he says, he has heard of their faith, he probably did not know them. This letter to the Ephesians was probably a circular letter to the churches in the area there. And he's heard of their faith and their love. And he is rejoicing with them. He's filled with thankfulness to God. As he'll say in chapter 2, once they were dead in sin, but now they are alive. This great work of the Spirit in bringing them new life through faith in Christ. And you might think that since God has done this amazing work in their lives, that, that they're so blessed in Christ that Paul would just stop here. But no, Paul knows well the reality of Christian experience of the Christian life being a war, being a battle, being a race that we don't finish in this life. And he's going to come to chapters 4, 5, and 6 when he's applying all this great doctrine of chapters 1, 2, and 3 and calling them to a life worthy of the calling they've received. And so he prays. And he's basically saying, you've been given all of these spiritual blessings Now I'm praying that you enter into them more and more in your experience. In the words or in the thought of the sermon this this morning, Christians are people who have experienced Pentecost, but for the rest of their lives, that's being worked out in their experience, the great power of the Spirit of God dwelling on them. Or we could put it this way, the Christian positionally is raised with Christ, But for the rest of his or her life, there's the process of living that out in the power of the Spirit. And what does he pray for here? 
He prays for a number of things, but it's essentially a prayer about knowing God better. Let's look at our text then under two main points. The first is that they might know God better, and then secondly, the, the other main petitions of his prayer that we'll see. First then, the essence of Paul's prayer, that they might know God better. Verses 17 and 18, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit, and in some translations like the NIV, that's capital S. Many commentators take that view, and I take that view as well. Or we would say the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, of God. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, and then he goes on to speak about other blessings as well. He's praying for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. And we might say, well, don't they already have this? Yes. The first half of chapter 1 speaks of their entering into this knowledge of God. In fact, verses 13 and 14, we saw how they were sealed with the Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit. He's the guarantee of the whole redemption that they've experienced. So they have entered in. Why would he pray then that the Father would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation? Well, the answer is that it's not like the Christians have more of the spirit as if he's quantity of some kind that can be measured, but a greater experience, a greater entering into the fullness of the spirit of God. Only Jesus Christ had the Spirit of God without measure upon Him. And even though Christians are indwelt by the Spirit, sealed with the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, we must pray for a greater measure of the Spirit in our experience of the Spirit's work in our life. His power and enabling, His life-transforming work, His searching of our hearts to expose our sin, His work to reveal Christ to us, that we might see the glory of Christ more and more and so be transformed, His work of bringing us to the cross and helping us to behold anew what Jesus Christ did for us, His granting us the knowledge of God in an increasing way. This is what Paul is praying for these Ephesians. And essentially, this is praying for revival and renewal, both personally, individually, and corporately. It's like we would read in Isaiah 64 where Isaiah prays, Oh, Lord, oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would tear the heavens and come down. Isaiah 64 is a prayer for revival. That's what we need to be praying for the Lord to bless us with the work of His Spirit in our hearts in a new and greater way day by day that we would grow in the knowledge of God. Think of a farmer praying for his crops. And you can just think of that dry spell we had this summer when the, when the corn was so stressed. Those fields of corn were being so stressed because there wasn't rain week after week and it was so hot. And imagine a farmer with a field of corn like that um, praying to the Lord and praying, Lord, help my corn to grow. Help my corn not to be brown. 
Can you imagine a farmer praying that and not praying, oh Lord, send rain? And wouldn't that be a logical prayer? In that, and this is like, if we're going to pray for growing in the knowledge of God and all these things that we know we need to more fully enter into, the summary of God's blessing to us, all the good things in Christ can be summarized as the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is the down payment. He's the sum of all the blessings we have in Christ. He's like the rain that we need to pour upon us day by day. And here's Paul thinking of these brothers and sisters in this pagan city of Ephesus. You can read back in the book of Acts about the riots that went on there with the the cult of Artemis and how they had this two-hour riot with everybody crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And there was this fledgling church in this pagan city and facing all kinds of temptations, all kinds of opposition, certainly a pilgrim journey they faced. And Paul is saying, on the basis of the resurrected and ascended Christ, who is at the right hand of God, and Acts chapter 2, who has poured out the Spirit upon the fledgling church of that day, grant the Holy Spirit in power to these believers that they might know you that he may give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. How we need that knowledge of God. How we need to be growing in that. And just stop and think about your own life. There are many things that we ought to pray for and should pray for and hopefully we do pray for. Are you praying for an increase in your knowledge of God. Not just knowing about God, although that's part of it, of course, but your experience of God, His dealings in your life, your growth in His grace, and in coming to know Him. What battles do you face this week? Maybe sufferings of certain kind, maybe stresses in your life, maybe temptations of various kind, that in all of those circumstances that we would come to know more deeply our God by the Spirit and by the Word of God. Are you praying for your fellow Christians for that? If you know someone who's going through a hard time, that God would work even in sufferings to deepen their knowledge of God. Are you praying that for your loved ones? What an important prayer for parents to be praying for children, that their experience of church that their experience of Christianity would not be so much external constraint, but that there would be reality in their hearts, that they would truly come to know Jesus Christ. In the words of John 17.3, for this is eternal life, that they might know you, the true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the very essence of eternal life, to know the true God. Christians are people who have entered into the reality of spiritual blessing, chapter 1, by grace, through faith, and then we are to be growing in it by the Spirit's power day by day, week by week. And maybe we don't see much change from day by day, but hopefully over the months and over the years, we can look back and maybe it's more others who would say this of us, I think that you have come to know God more deeply. That's our goal. 
that at the very core of our being, we would walk more deeply with this God who has saved us by his grace. David McCullough, one of the great authors of our day, uh, writes a book called Mornings on Horseback about Teddy Roosevelt. And he tells about Teddy at age 13 getting two gifts, and one of them is glasses so he can begin to see. It's an interesting account. I'll just read a part of it here. McCullough wrote, Then at a stroke in the summer of 1872, Teddy Roosevelt was given a gun and a large pair of spectacles. And nothing had prepared him for the shock, for the infinite difference in his entire perception of the world about him or his place in it. The gun was a gift from Papa, a 12-gauge, double-barreled, French-made shotgun with a lot of kick and of such simple, rugged design that it could be hammered open with a brick if need be. The ideal gun for an awkward, frequently absent-minded 13-year-old. But blasting away with it in the woods near Dobbs Ferry, he found he had trouble hitting anything. More puzzling, his friends were constantly shooting at things he never even saw. This and the fact that they could also read words on billboards that he could barely see. He reported to his father, and it was thus at summer's end that the spectacles were obtained. They transformed everything. They literally opened an entirely new world to me, he wrote years afterwards, remembering the moment. His range of vision until then had been about 30 feet, perhaps less. Everything beyond was a blur, yet neither he nor the family had sensed how handicapped he was. I had no idea how beautiful the world was. I could not see, and yet was wholly ignorant that I was not seeing, he writes. McCullough goes on and says, why in the world? It was a mystery somewhat why the Roosevelt family did not notice this until Teddy was 13. What were they thinking? You know, he goes on to say, but obviously, what a transforming event in young Teddy's life. And just that quote from him, that he had no idea what it was like to see. That's what Christians have entered into. We've come to faith in Christ. We know the true God, but don't we all know how little we've entered in to that knowledge? And the rest of his life, Teddy was seeing in a new way with those spectacles. And the rest of our Christian lives, by the work of the Spirit, by the Word of God, By the gift we have through faith in Christ, we see and know more deeply God himself. We need to be praying for that spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. And that brings us to our second main points, which which, uh, are the three other great truths here associated with the knowledge of God. I want to briefly look at each of these. One is... The hope of God's call in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. This hope is the expectation we enjoy as a result of the fact that God has called us. It's a future-looking hope based on the fact that we're called by God. It looks back to the beginning of our Christian life. We've been called in Christ, but it looks back and looks ahead at the same time. It's a hope that looks to final completion. 
And how can we be so sure that this is absolutely fulfilled? How can we have this future hope? Romans 5, 8 tells us we have this hope because the love of God has already been poured out into our hearts by the Spirit. This future hope of glory and of blessing is ours because this heavenly love of Christ is already ours. The Holy Spirit, we've already seen in chapter 1, indwells us as the guarantee of that final inheritance. Why is this important? It has a deep impact on how we live now. If we have our eyes enlightened that we might know this hope, enables us to live for Christ now. We need to see the future clearly, Sinclair Ferguson writes. We need to see the future clearly if we are to live in the present faithfully. Scripture upon Scripture upon Scripture holds out the hope of our calling, the hope of future blessing when we see Jesus face to face. Some of those blessings we enter into in this life, some wait for their final fulfillment in the life to come. And that's one of the great motivations in Scriptures to living for Jesus Christ now. It's sure. It's firm. There are times that I have to walk out the front door at night and maybe I just want to go out and look up at the stars. But I don't usually turn on the porch light because I don't want to get bugs around the door because then if you open the door, then the bugs come in. So I don't turn on any lights, open the door, walk out. I know, even if I can't see anything, I'm kind of blinded by the lights inside. I walk out. I know I go take about two steps, and then there's a step down. And I know there's a brick pathway going out there to the driveway. And I walk out there, and I can walk out there pretty much in pitch black. And I know it's firm. I know that I can walk on the pathway. I look at this calling. You might know that you might have eyes to see. You might not be able to see it with the eye of sight, We don't in this life. But with the eye of faith, these things are secure. There's a walkway much more firm than the brick walkway in front of my house. It's it's the, the sure hope of our calling in Christ, that our eyes might be enlightened to know that. And it enables us to more deeply know and walk with God. We have to keep that before us in this life. The second particular petition in the second half of verse 18 is that we might know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And these are almost redundant terms here, that we might know the riches of the glory of the inheritance. Paul is piling upon term upon term for emphasis here just to show how rich we are in Christ. And there are two options for what this phrase means. And we've already seen this when Tucker preached earlier on a similar phrase, that either this is the inheritance God has in us, we are his treasured possession, an Old Testament theme. Israel was the treasured possession of God. And that's a biblical theme. We find that over and over again. Or it's the inheritance we have in him. He is our portion. He is our inheritance. We have an inheritance in Christ. Colossians 1.12, 1, 
which is the sister passage of this, argues for this second sense. That may be the case. I actually like the first sense better. But both of them are biblical ideas. According to the interpretation that we are the treasured possession of God, that we would know this, the idea is that we need eyes to see how greatly loved and blessed we are by God as His treasured possession. Do we believe that? Do we know that? Aren't we often discouraged by our remaining sin and and feel like we can hardly even pray? We are the treasured possession of God. We need our eyes open to believe that by faith because of Christ and the gospel, what He's done in dying and rising again for us. We belong to God. We are the, the treasured possession, the inheritance of God in that sense. Probably some of you saw President and Mrs. Obama's daughters on stage with them this week at the Democrat convention. I didn't actually see that on television, but I saw the newspaper story, and I, and I looked at the front page and saw, wow, they've really grown up. And the article went on to say, probably many of you are looking at them for the first time in four years because they've been protected. The Obamas have protected them. They kept them out of the public eye to a large extent. And why is that? Well, because those girls are the Obama's treasured possession, aren't they? And, you know, you can just imagine them. They can probably just walk into the Oval Office whenever they want to. Of course, I'm sure if it's an inappropriate time and there's a big cabinet meeting going on there, they might hear it from their dad later on and be disciplined in some way or scolded about that. But you know that the Secret Service, if they were to do that, is not going to arrest them and drag them off. No. You know, at the worst, they're going to get some punishment from dad. They're the treasured possession of the Obamas. They live in the White House. They are fundamentally loved no matter what. And even in a greater sense, Christians are the treasured possession of our God. What blessing we have. And then the third petition here in verse 19, and which leads into the rest of our text, is this description of the greatness of his power toward us. And verse 19 says, and, understood, and that you might know, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that this power that is at work in us is the same power that was at work in Christ, and he points to the resurrection of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, and the dominion of Christ over all things by this same power. You think, what power? There's no greater power in the world. And that is the immeasurable great power of our God toward us who believe. The context here is that the Ephesians came out of a pagan culture in Ephesus that made much of spirit powers, of powers in the heavenly realms. In fact, when we get to verse 21 and read this, far above all rule and authority and power and every dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
those, some of those are rare terms in the Greek, and yet they're terms that are found in certain magic papyri and certain inscriptions in Ephesus that probably relate to this very same Artemis cult in which the Ephesians were once engaged. And so they've come out of this pagan culture and atmosphere, and they have renounced it. In fact, Acts 19 records this great burning of these magic scrolls or books, possibly even to the financial impoverishing of certain individuals who own these. They renounced them because of faith in Christ, because of their dedication to Christ. But in reality, as Paul prays and as he points to the resurrection, ascended power of Christ who has dominion over all things, he is saying these relatively weak believers in the world's mind and maybe in the minds of those at Ephesus, these who are scorned, maybe as powerless, they have an all to get together different and higher power in Jesus Christ. And this power relates to our God's dominion over all, Christ's enthronement. He now, Christ now possesses the full authority of the Father. That's what this description is, that Jesus exalted. He's superior to every imaginable hostile power that the Ephesians could think of. Maybe they struggled with fear based on the fact that uh, they knew these spiritual powers were, were real in some sense. And the amazing thing is as he describes this dominion of Christ in verse 22, Paul says, and he, the Father, put all things under his Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things. But he doesn't end there. He has that little phrase, to the church or for the church. Gave him as head over all things For the church, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's an astounding declaration. We could understand how the apostle could write about the dominion of Christ, but then to bring it all at the end and say, this is all for the church, to the church. It's not just unto Christ himself. He has, by His grace, chosen to include His people as recipients of that same power. How important it is, then, that we know the greatness of His power toward us in our struggle with remaining sin, in our sufferings in this life, which sometimes there may be great injustices Christians experience, to realize that we have a great Savior who is over all, has dominion over all, and yet He exercises that dominion for the good of His people, His bride, His treasured possessions, you and me. And then you can't even hardly understand. Commentators tend to to lose words when they describe, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. How could it be that we are His body, and somehow His fullness of Him who fills all in all, showing the comprehensive scope of the power of Christ on behalf of the church. 
Well, the theme of these petitions and the theme of this prayer is right in line with this theme we've seen throughout Ephesians 1, and that is the believer's union with Christ. This is a very important New Testament doctrine, our union with Christ. We are in Christ. We are in Him. That phrase appears over and over again, and now we're praying that we would know Him better. Paul is praying for that, and it all comes back to our union with Christ. He's seated in the heavenly realms. He is all-powerful, and it is for us because of our union with Him. And, of course, that union is all by grace through faith. But out of that union comes communion. It's important to realize that. Communion doesn't lead to union. It's not like we go up on a hilltop somewhere and meditate enough. We know that's not the way to be saved. Meditation isn't the way to be saved. It's by grace through faith. Communion doesn't lead to union with Christ. No, it's the other way around. Union leads to communion with Jesus Christ, with the triune God. And so, because of our union, we have all these blessings. We have the future hope of glory. We have this inheritance in God. We have amazing power. We have the knowledge of God in which we're growing. We have all that we need to live for Christ. And so, out of that union, we need to begin living and begin communing with God Out of this union flows our communion. And so as we pray this prayer, we're praying for deeper communion with God. And you might say, well, what's the secret to that greater communion? I want that greater communion. There's no big secret. I would say that there are four elements to it. If you want to think about it in your life this week, prayer, the Bible, getting it into our hearts. And you might not think about the next two. The body of Christ coming here tonight. It's very ordinary, isn't it? And then communion. We're about to observe that in which there is real communion with Christ. Those are pretty ordinary things, aren't they? But if you're praying to grow in the knowledge of God, that's the way. Those elements right there. And just think of The fact that it's Christian worship and fellowship, that's one of those. I don't know that I have ever really met or gotten to know someone who has deep fellowship and communion with God who's not part, a regular part, of a Bible-believing church. Isn't it mysterious? Isn't it amazing that God works through us as broken as we are, as weak as we are, to help us to grow in the knowledge of God. That's one of the elements of growth for us. Ironside, a great preacher, tells of meeting a very godly man early in his ministry. The man was dying of tuberculosis, and Ironside had gone to see him, and his name was Andrew Fraser. Fraser could barely speak above a whisper. His lungs were almost gone, yet he said, Young man, you are trying to preach Christ, are you not? Ironside replied, yes, I am. Well, he said, sit down a little. Let us talk together about the Word of God. So Ironside opened his Bible, and they began to talk. And this man, until his strength was gone, he opened up for Ironside one passage 
after another, teaching truths that Ironside at the time had never seen or appreciated at this point in his life. And before long, Ironside has tears coming down his eyes as he heard this. And he said, where did you get these things? Can you tell me where I can find a book that will open them up to me? Did you get them in a seminary or college? But Fraser replied, my dear young man, I learned these things on my knees on the mud floor of a little sod cottage in the north of Ireland. There with my Bible open before me, I used to kneel for hours at a time and ask the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to my soul and to open the word to my heart. He taught me more on my knees on that mud floor than I ever could have learned in all the seminaries or colleges in the world. And that's not to denigrate colleges or seminaries. They certainly have their place, and books are very good as well. But do we desire to know the living God? How can we know God better? To pray for the Spirit to work, to open our eyes to all that we have in Christ. And if you've never come to trust in Christ, to begin by trusting Jesus Christ. And to realize that your union with Christ is the basis of your daily communion with him. And then seek to grow in that communion with the help of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father, we want more of you. We know that you freely give yourself to us, that you are not waiting and hiding from us in some way, that we would have to go through a difficult procedure to find you, but that you delight to make yourself known to your people, to your children through faith in Christ. We want more of that knowledge of the true God that we might glorify you, that we might enjoy you, that we might live for you, that we might trust in you, that we might love you and fear you and depend on you and honor you and know you and obey you. Give us that knowledge, we ask, for your glory and that we might delight in our God. And so send your Spirit upon us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.